Well, good morning, everyone. It's fun to have been preparing a sermon this week. So um, the content of this sermon is from Harry Winters. He's a pastor up at Akron Christian Reforms. And I thought I'd share some of the sermon with you alongside uh, some of my own thoughts. So here we go. I was in the kitchen of a friend's house, and they began telling me about a sermon they had recently heard from Harry Winters. A kitchen is where all good thoughts and stories seem to come alive. And on this World Communion Day, I saw it fitting to share the sermon thoughts from friends in a kitchen on Jesus feeding the 5,000. So when I was a kid, I was taught the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, as I'm sure you were too. It was portrayed as a miracle of multiplication of the bread and the fish, although no one ever described how that happened. And the whole point always was that Jesus could do miracles, such as feeding the 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish. If you think back to the original telling of of this story, I bet some of you, like me, can still see the flannel board in your childhood Sunday school room. And so I wondered, when I was a child, did the basket simply never empty? If the disciples watched them closely enough, would they see bread and fish magically reappear as people took them out? Was this the world's fastest example of bread and fish cell mitosis? How did these fish and the bread magically multiply? to feed 5,000 men, not to mention how many women and children, I wondered. So a little context building here as we think about the overarching symbolism of bread. The Jews have, a long, have long memories that stretch all the way back to Abraham, and they still talk about ancient events as if they were yesterday. With that long memory come certain expectations. They expect their God, for example, to liberate them whenever they become enslaved. It's just what God is supposed to do. Maybe not keep them out of slavery, but certainly to liberate them. They also expected God to send prophets to both lead and perform miracles. These miracles cued the people that God had indeed sent the prophet. Had sent the prophet. That expectation was first created within them when God led them out of slavery into the wilderness, following this stranger, Moses. As a sign that Moses was truly a pro- God's prophet, God rained manna from heaven, and the manna appeared as thin flakes like frost on the ground of the desert floor. And Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given to you to eat. The prophet Moses delivered the Lord's bread, which he proved, which proved he was the Lord's prophet. Same, the prophet Elijah was also part of a bread miracle. During a great famine, he asked the widow at Zarephath to please bring me a piece of bread. She said, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and make me a small cake of bread, and then you and your son may have rest. Then your oil and flour won't run out until the famine ends. And this widow trusted Elijah. She believed him. She went home and made Elijah the first loaf of bread, and her oil and flour never depleted during that famine. So... The Lord's prophets proved their relationship with God by feeding the people. So too with Jesus. And that, by the way, is the theological significance of this story. It serves as a sign that Jesus truly is a prophet from God. It's not just an amazing story about the miracles he could do. This specific sign places him in the historical prophetic line. Jesus is like Moses, like Elijah, and like Elisha. So if we go back to our biblical dinner hour, which I think there's a picture of, um, there we go, we've got a little art back here. If we go back to this biblical dinner hour, I was taught that this feeding was a miracle. But if you look closely, you notice the text doesn't call it a miracle. 
No one out there in the wilderness that day called it a miracle. If they had, I think the gospel writers would have put that in their texts, but they don't. They don't see it as a miracle. 5,000 men are fed and no one is shocked. No one is astonished. There aren't any conversions and dancing in the wilderness. The text is simply straightforward. He gave thanks. He broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up the 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. That's all there is. So why have most of us been taught since birth that this is a great miracle? I think one reason why is because Christians often want Jesus to be a magician, a real magician. But probably the chief reason is because the disciples say that we only have five small loaves and two fishes, and the story ends with the number of those who ate were about 5,000 men and besides women and children. So those two facts don't quite add up, so we jump to the conclusion it's a miracle. But I'm skeptical, not because I don't think that miracles are real. I'm skeptical, I'm skeptical because I don't think the story necessarily teaches that it was a miracle. And the reason why I'm of this mind is because the disciples are notoriously wrong in their understanding of almost everything throughout the Gospels. Plus, the disciples are often irritated by the crowds. And who could blame them? And so, here, they're trying to escape the crowds. But the crowds just keep following. They keep pushing. They keep demanding. They keep calling out to them. And so now, as evening approaches, the exhausted disciples say to Jesus, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And the, and the disciples are almost rude to Jesus because they want the crowds to go away. It seems like they're not really concerned about the hunger of the people. They're concerned about their own hunger, their own exhaustion, and their own time. Get rid of them, Jesus. Send them away. And the excuse of they need to find food is just that, an excuse, cloaked in the appearance of responsibility. But Jesus calls them on it. Don't, they don't need to go away. If you're worried about them being hungry, then give them your food. Such a great counterpunch. The disciples start to sputter. What? We only have five loaves and two fish. What good does it do to give it to them? But Jesus ignores their protests and says, bring your food here to me. And right there, the disciples have a decision to make. One, they bring their food to him and go hungry because they know he's going to give their food away. Or two, refuse to give them their food and be full. And this is the heart of the story, you see. No one ever told me that before. The point isn't multiplication, it's subtraction. The decision that the disciples are called to make out here in the wilderness is the whole point of the story. It's a turning point. And I think that's why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all include it in their Gospels. Because they recognize this moment as the moment they choose to follow Jesus and ignore their empty stomachs. In the wilderness that day, the disciples accept Jesus as their Lord of their life. They accept Jesus as Lord of their food. And that's the point. Because Matthew simply tells us the people were fed and there was much more food collected in the end than when it all started. No explanation, no exclamation about a miracle. I think because by the time Matthew records his story, he and the other disciples fully understand what happened that day. So how did this happen? If there wasn't a miracle where the fish and bread were just kept multiplying themselves, how did it happen? Allow me to suggest a different scenario that also isn't in the text but seems more probable to me. And you can accept it or discard it. It doesn't really matter as long as you consider the heart of the story lying with the decision of the disciples. The scenario is this. First, the crowds aren't stupid. They don't enter the wilderness without more than adequate food and water. They've lived in this land for generations and hundreds of years. 
If I were to hike the wilderness terrain like these folks, I know for sure I'd want Dave with me because Dave has a penchant for packing a Mary Poppins bag of snacks. Once the road gets rough or the first whisper of a whimper begins, Dave will toss an orange or cheese stick. To hike with Dave is to have a portable vending machine. But Dave isn't the only one here like that. You are all similar because you think about the journey ahead and you prepare. I've seen the raisin-littered pews, the stock diaper bags, and the mini containers reserved for leftover curry and carry and delights. These people in the Gospel of Matthew aren't foolish tourists running after Jesus without their backpack of snacks. They live here. They know what it's like out here in the wilderness. And so it's more plausible that as the baskets of bread and fish move through the crowd, the crowd begins to take out their own stores of food that they had brought with them. And they begin to combine some of their own food with the disciples' food. The disciples are just wrong when they declare that the crowd doesn't have any food. And so, the crowd freely, without being commanded by Jesus, they sacrifice their food for the others around them. This collection of folks begin to partake of a meal that is radically inclusive for their time. Meals were the places where social barriers were upheld and vigorously followed. You are what you eat, but we're social, but who you eat with also defines you. You did not just eat with anyone. Sharing a meal meant sharing fellowship, extending the right hand of hospitality. It meant acceptance, friendship, and loyalty. Meals are often restricted by national boundaries, political boundaries, and ideological boundaries, but when Jesus indiscriminately offers table fellowship to all who come to him, he offers full access to the Eucharistic life to anyone who wills. So that, in the end, all the bread and fish collected by the disciples is a hodgepodge of pieces from the crowd who are now teaching the disciples how to sacrifice and how to trust, as, trust Jesus as the Lord who provides. And so, yes, a miracle does happen here, but it's a miracle of the transformation of the disciples' self-focused hearts and hearts that trust Jesus as their Lord. And so it's no coincidence, then, that the very next story that Matthew tells us is Peter trusting Jesus enough to jump into the water. I don't think he would have been able to throw himself overboard before feeding of the 5,000. Out in the wilderness, Jesus radically invites a people into healing and into community with each other, and he doesn't stop there. The Last Supper, where he took bread, the sacred prophetic symbol of nourishment, and he offered it to the disciples as if it were a piece of himself. He took wine and hinted at the far reaches he would go to demonstrate his love for us. He invited us into communion with him and with each other. Even after he has risen from the dead, he brings us back to breakfast on the beach. That's what self-sacrifice self gets us, a, whole world where, or a, whole, a world where Jesus makes us whole. <laughs>